Welcome to the Fabrice Guerrier Show, a podcast that explores the future. I bring you new ideas and perspectives that can allow you to really understand how the next 20, 30 years of our lives on this planet is going to be like. I know it, you know it, and everyone feels it deep in their guts. We are going through massive changes on all fronts, economically, politically, culturally, technologically. And personally, I think we need new perspectives that can allow us to reimagine how we're going to live our lives and how can we create a better world. My two guests today are Amy Drury and Michael Drury. They're a couple who lives out in Virginia and they're small scale farmers. Amy is a documentary maker and Michael is a lawyer as well. And they both have a passion for small scale farming. And our conversation today is so fascinating because we explore a myriad of ideas and topics. I think one that stands out is this rural decline in America where people are leaving the rural areas and moving into urban centers. Another one is is the decline of, of small scale farming itself and our dependency on bigger systems across the world. I think this conversation is so fascinating. I learned so much. It is really compelling. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation as well, because it's such a unique perspective from two small scale American farmers and their outlook and their visions. I appreciate you tuning in and listening to me today. And if you enjoy what you hear, please don't forget to leave us five star on iTunes. Support me on Patreon and share it with friends and families and colleagues. Again, thank you. And let's dive right into this exciting conversation. All right. Welcome. Welcome to the listeners. I have two special guests, Amy Drury and Michael Drury, a power couple from Virginia, farmers, as well as attorney from the Michael side. Let's just dive in completely. Amy and Michael, please tell me, how did you discover your passions? What what led you to where you're at today? Well, um, this is Amy and I'll start. Uh, For me, it was pretty easy. I have had a lifelong interest in the environment and in gardening and in food. And so eight years ago, I was hired by the National Parks Conservation Association to produce a couple of advocacy films to fight what was going to be the largest coal plant in Virginia, five miles from Michael's farm. And Michael was the attorney that was uh, fighting the coal plant. And I had to interview him on his farm. And the rest is history. We discovered that we had a mutual passion for farming and each other. And uh, we've been able to combine our love of farming and agriculture and the environment into, um, into a passion. Mm. That's amazing. How about you, Michael? And, and if anyone will notice, this accent is um, not as deep as it used to be, but uh, it's a Tidewater colonial accent, they call it, but, um, which is probably left over from Old English. But um, so so the reason I say that is that 
my family came into Virginia in the 1600s and um, started farming then, which the majority of people were farming at that time, and uh, at least were lived an agrarian lifestyle. And um, anyway, so my background is is English coming into Virginia farming, and um, I was always around it, um, and and lived on a farm years of my life, and then we moved into a small town, but was always connected to the farm and the farm life. And uh, I was the oldest grandchild, and heard the stories and helped my grandfather on the farm as well as my father. So so I followed them in the footsteps very 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 early, and um, I have memories of being four and five years old and being set on a tractor and saying, hold the, hold the steering wheel straight. And so I got to see the old style of farming. And um, so it just intrigued me. I'm, I love history. And I wanted to follow in those footsteps. To It, it intrigued me to um, 100 years here. And again, I, I really, really wanted to follow in those footsteps to um, – to see what it was like. And so I went to college at NC State and got an ag degree and then came back and was peanut farming. And I knew that it was being, um, there was price supports and I won't get too far into it because it's probably more detailed than you need to know. But I knew that that was going away. And um, so I, while I was farming, I diversified and got a business and law degree from the College of William and Mary. And, um, I just, I just was intrigued about the interconnection of the history of farming, seeing the old style of farming, seeing where it was headed, and just the intertwining of community. And so, I, 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 my family history is there, and it just intrigued me to experience it as well. And um, so, anyway, so I gave got the opportunity to come back and and buy what my grand I mean, my grandfather's farm and what my father was raised. I think that's really amazing, both of you. I feel. I think you get, you have a perspective that is unique that uh, many Americans don't get to see. As more Americans are migrating to to cities and in urban centers, I, I'm I'm wondering like what are some of the the challenges that you've seen farm farmers in America face? Like what are some of the biggest problem that you have experienced coming up in your journey? Um, either Amy or Michael, you can speak onto that. Well, and, I, and Amy, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna just start it off, and then I'm gonna let you lead it. But I just want to make one statement: <laughs> urban, urban people, come back! Y'all are leaving us, if you understand. <laughs> and uh, so many of us have a choice. I have a choice to be here, mm. and uh, sometimes that's frowned upon. Um, and urban citizens, a lot of times, look down upon people that stay here. So I'm saying, don't vacate us. I think these COVID times will tell you why it's a great place to be. And Amy, I'm going to let you answer that. Well, farming are the statistics. The We're losing nearly 100,000 small farms every year in the United States. And the average age of the farmer is 58. Wow. Less than 2% of the population now produces food for the other 98%. So that's a pretty heavy burden wow. for farmers to sh shoulder. Right. So, so. 98% of the people in the U.S. are depending on 2% of the population for food, and that 2% of the population is declining. It continues to dwindle. Um, another statistic that alarms me is that consumers today spend less than 10% of their income on groceries. In the past, they spent as much as 43%. 
And so one of the things that's happening is that uh, it's the economics. People, farmers cannot afford to continue farming, small farms especially, because they're not making enough money to do it. Mm. Almost all people that are involved in, in small farms and agriculture have to work other jobs off the farm to be able to afford to, to pay for farming. And, and you know, so the consumers are enjoying a huge advantage on the backs of the farmers. The average farm income is around 70000 but the income from the actual farming is a negative $1,400. Wow. So that tells you right there, there that so the income farmers are receiving are not from farming. Uh, let me interrupt because when Amy's using the term farming, she's, she's talking about s small family farms. And when I say that, I want to clarify because people will see farms driving around in nice trucks and, and expensive equipment and very expensive equipment. And um, it, when I was raised around here, her reference is to when I was raised here, there were hundreds of family farms. Mm. And I, I just, just hundreds of them just ran in my locality. Now I can count the farmers on my probably one hand oh, wow. that are actually in it and make a living off of it. And I call that corporate agriculture because it is, it's, it's sprayers and I'm not dining them at all because I've got relatives that are still doing it like that. I just didn't want to go there to where a field where you couldn't smell the soil and a field was just one more place and you sat inside a tractor with GPS, you understand me, and farmed half the county. It, that's not, that's corporate farming. And so that's a distinct difference because they're having to plant more and more and more acreage every year to sustain themselves. So there's certainly a divide there. Um, and sometimes when these numbers, you understand me, are used, that's a distinct difference between what I call big corporate farming and um, and and farming per se. And when I use the term, and I think Amy Hughes too, you verify that with me. We, we're talking about the people that are smaller, that want to raise their family on farms, but just can't make it um, without everybody we know has a second all farm income, including us. So I just want to interrupt and say that. No, and thank you for that, Michael. And and uh, another clarification is that small farms are producing the food that we actually eat. Corporate farming, for the most part, is producing, you know, the four staples for fuel and cattle, uh, you know, animal feed, which is corn, soybeans, um, uh, wheat, and well, what's the other? Well, cotton. Cotton's a big one, too. That's not food, but but there is a difference between small farms that are producing food we actually eat and large corporate farms. Wow, that those, those statistics are startling, and I'm I'm like I'm wondering like wh like how, where do we go from here? And and I and before we where before we do where do we go from here? I'll, I'll be intrigued. It's like why is that happening? Why has there been this radical? shift of mass migration into urban areas? Why, why are people sort of perceiving local farming as something that is not like, maybe, maybe that's what you said, but maybe I'm perceiving this as to like not attractive work to do. Like, what can we do? Because I feel like what are the unintended consequences of this small percentage of farmers really like giving mass amounts of, of produce to the entire economy? Like what are, 
what are why is this happening and and what can we do about it or what have you been your community let me let me let me talk on that for just a second is that and i'm use this peanut economy here in our local area um and amy knows a lot about this because she did a film on it and um peanut after the civil war the size was well, of course everybody was devastated and what an unfortunate war and i say unfortunate that it couldn't be resolved in some other shape or form rather than killing a bunch of people but it left this area tattered <clears throat> and peanuts uh became a uh, a crop that helped pull back because they could grow and pull off soils run down the soils and so that economy started and i'm sitting right began and i'm talking about where it began commercially uh and and, and what i'm uh, uh getting at is that um you know what happened with the peanuts is in as amy said earlier in around the year 2000 um the government used to and people would and and urban people push back against this you would say they are subsidizing the farmers when the reality of it is is that most farmers we uh we hit up against monopoly buyers in other words you don't have many people like a peanut is a perishable product and you can't store it for so long and so there was a monopoly of buyers the the buyers could set the price and the government came in and said and this was during the depression and said we'll set i won't get into too much of the detail of the program but basically they set a floor in other words you could sell them to the federal government or borrow money on it uh, at a certain level and when i was farming that was around 30 cents a pound and you could if the buyers didn't offer you 30 cents or more um you know you could you could sell them to the federal government for for food programs and, and export well that helped stabilize this area economically and what happened and there was not a whole lot of debate about this across our country which is very disturbing to me is that those that program that price protection program was lifted when you get into nafta and all these trade agreements with other countries which i'm not against um, but what happened is that basically the u.s in these trade agreements again i'm not against trade agreements mm -hmm. but they opened up a borders where you could have cheap imports mm -hmm. and so when they opened up the borders and said we're no longer price protecting peanuts went from 30 some cent a pound um the way we could sell them in one year seriously not making this up to seven cents a pound wow so the farmers in this area they had to stop and sell equipment and so forth and so on and it it's hard to make it come back and what was the price my, my point can you repeat the price it went it went from about 30 some cent a pound to down to about around seven to eight cent a pound in a little over a year's time wow. now it's bounced back it's up to about 20 cent a pound um, but the way farmers is, well, I won't get into the economics of it. They've had to grow more and more and more per acre to make it, make it, um, to break even mm -hmm. local farmers around here. When I was farming, we could, I yield around 3000 pounds a acre, and now it's 6,000 pounds a acre. They've doubled the yields, but yet they're probably making less than I did at 3000. But what, what I'm saying is, is in the u.s I, let's just gonna say it our standard of living is higher than other countries and here's the root problem and sorry to be so long-winded on this because i am passionate about this point 
and I wish the U.S. consumers would understand this point. I, in the 90s, worked for an agricultural exporter that sent me down into South America and to Mexico, and I got to see this firsthand. And I would go down into these countries, and let's say Mexico, who were, were competitors. These farm laborers were making $8 a day and living in plywood huts, six, seven, eight people. I don't want to live like that. And that's what I'm competing against. So the U.S. consumer, when they buy something, and hey, we're helping support that economy, so it's a mixed blessing here, but you are supporting a system that's underpaying people. Mm. And so, and so, and I'm gonna go right over to the apple industry in Virginia, in Winchester, Virginia, one of the biggest apple centers I know in the state of Washington is too, a uh, big apple economy, just like it was with the peanuts here in Virginia. The majority of the apples that your children eat that are in applesauce and everything, I, I want to say almost 90-some percent of them, they come from China. Wow. And it's labor cost. And you understand. In other words, mm-hmm. it bothers me greatly that we buy products from other countries that almost are putting their farmers in. They are. They're living in poverty and we're supporting a poverty system. And the U.S. farmers just not willing to do that. Um, they have to get bigger or they have to move to the city. And, and um, sometimes I just wish we could could see that. Um, you know, I'm down in Chile in the 1990s and um, it was in June, which is fall down there. They were apple picking and um, and I looked and they still are spraying DDT and toxaphene on their apples, which we outlawed that back in late 50s in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But these in other words, we are importing food from other countries that's produced cheaply because of 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 low paid labor. And we don't have any controls, a lot of controls on that. We not only have no controls on it, there's not even any point of origin labeling on our food so consumers can make an educated cost. And sorry for the long windedness on it. No, this but is great. We can't we can't compete with that cheap labor. Um, and it breaks my heart. Amy and I, a year or two ago, was on a huge apple farm in in northwest Virginia where they were selling apple wine. And they said that there are hundreds of acres of apple trees have now parred down to only what they can sell fresh at their roadside stand or what they can sell um, making apple cider and, and wine. I think they're down to uh, 20 or 30 acres of apple trees because uh, they just cannot compete. Um, you know, if we want us to live in plywood huts, we probably could. But, uh, and I'll make this point. Everybody wants natural organic products. A lot of people do. And I figured out mathematically that um, most, if I can get a laborer to help me, which is hard to get anyone who wants to come out and do this type of work, hand work, um, they want, and I understand it, 12 to $15 an hour. But the prices that are being paid to me it equates out to about uh, around at the most probably about four dollars an hour. So that is the reason when Mike Drury, who has a business and law degree, works on this farm, if I can make three or four dollars an hour, that's about all I can make. Mm-hmm. So that's a major, major reason. It is not market access. It's the eco- it's the issue of economics and pricing. And quite frankly, I want to live on the same level that an urban person is living on. 
Um, I love it. I stay here because I want to eat naturally off of my farm. And that's the main reason I'm here. But um, I'm frowned down upon, you know, um, by, I don't know, consumers elsewhere, urban consumers. But anyway, long-winded, but it's, we just cannot compete with the cheap labor and other nations and how they live. And, well, it's a good and I, think, I think we ought to be paying them a fair wage. So I, if my mantra is pay fair wages, even if it's imported food. So that's it on my <laughs> sermon, I should say. That's very compelling. Amy, what's your, what's your thoughts and response? Well, for Reese, for one of the things that I think that it boils down to your question was, why are people leaving and how can we stop this? People are leaving because of economics. Nobody can afford to do this anymore because uh, legislatively the government doesn't support it. America is supported least economically by its government of any first world country in the world. Wow. All the other first world countries in the world support their agriculture and America just just doesn't except for you know big commodity farming. So you know the, the legend we, we need a legislative solution to support agriculture and then we need to educate the consumers. So instead of driving and, and it's choices instead of driving two SUVs and living in a 4,000 square foot house, People need to pay, consumers need to pay more for their food. Now, that's easy for me to say when we've got a lot of poverty in the United States as well. And, you know, poor people are, are having, are struggling enough right now to pay for food that's not even healthy food. Mm. So it's a, it's, it's a complicated, it's a big problem. And we are on a mission to uh, find the best brains in the country to help us solve some of these problems. I almost, this is so startling and revealing. I did not know that. I'm going to be completely honest. I think in my perception, I felt like the U.S. subsidizes so much of the agriculture inside the country. And, and that's how farmers are able to like live and thrive. And I did not know that there were there are sort of variation in types of farming small large commercial and in the different the tensions and the struggles that are happening like what are some of the i guess how have you begun to how have you adapted um because you said michael you said like when you were younger you saw the transformation happen right before your eyes there was a hundred and then now you can literally count in your fingers like how have you adapted and you Amy as well like what how are people adapting to these changing times and and and, and also what because I almost feel like the times are changing and it almost seems there can be a point of no return but but for me I also believe that in terms of everything that's happening on the planet right now especially with climate change I feel like small farming, there so there sort of needs to be a renaissance, a revival in small farming as a way to address a lot of the inequities and unintended consequences of the urban life that a lot of people, even I'm going to put myself into it, might not be as conscious or pay attention to in our consumers. Like I, I would be intrigued to to hear like how have you adapted or how have you seen farmers adapt to these massive shifts that have taken their lives like this. Let me, I'm going to, I'm going to take you back a step because 
and then answer that question for you. And and reason I want to take you back a step is you said you feel like American farmers are subsidized. They are subsidized. But again, remember the difference between, I said, what I call a farmer who's a local. And when I use the term farmer, I'm talking about it's a creative, artistic process that you're out there working with the soil, working with the animals. That's far different from the corporate farmer. The corporate farmer is heavily subsidized. Um, they keep, the U.S. has a cheap food price policy, and, and I, I believe, and, and because food does drive inflation rates, and no politician wants the inflation rates. They want, want affordable, cheap food. And the way you do that is have an oversupply of food. And so there are incentives. In the U.S., there's price set points. There are programs. And so let's say that for a bushel of corn, the target price is $3.80 a bushel. And if you're in the Midwest, you can plant a thousand plus acres, a couple of thousand acres of corn. If, if the price, they have a target price and if your market price is below that, which most of the times it is in the Midwest, you get a direct check from the federal government. And I will tell you, that in my instance, and this is the reason I started diversifying myself educational-wise and how I could afford to just live here, I felt like I was on, I was, I call it farmer welfare. Because hmm. a lot of times when I was full-time farming, at the end of the year, I was crossing my fingers to get that check from the federal government, and that's what I lived on, And because there was that subsidy check. So there is a price protection on your big crops. Uh, such as corn and wheat and soybeans, that does not reach what I call the artisan farmer at all. And what Amy's been talking about and what I'm talking about, and I think what you're asking is how, how do you adapt to these changing changing times and still become that artisan of, of maintain, become an artisan type farmer or a farmer that I, I call it. And the reason I'm so passionate about that is I saw my grandfather and farm and father farming the old way. When my parents, I'm not that old, but when my parents got married, they were still hand picking corn at the farm when they first started farming. And so I've seen the whole transformation. And what what have you got to do? Is I live in a state of Virginia that does not does not, in my personal opinion, does not support the farmers especially the small farmers, very well at all. I went to North Carolina, NC State, and North Carolina does a better job of it. And and this is not me pitting one state against the other. North Carolina has done a good job of keeping that farmers small. And it's by it's by programs at their college. And I'm going to say for one instance, tobacco farming is kind of a hands-on type job. Well, when they saw tobacco farming going declining and the subsidies dropping on it, and because of the health health concerns, they turned around and implemented a program of growing muscadine grapes. And so they had the research. They went out and helped farmers set up vineyards with muscadine grapes. And the good thing about it is that it's a native crop. It was grown there by the Native Americans. It doesn't have a whole lot of pests. Um, and they, they helped with the marketing of it. So there's now a big juice uh basically market down there. They help set up um, processes. So you've got to help. The government has got to help, you understand me, find these niche markets mm-hmm. and develop them. A farmer can't do it himself. 
I went down there the other day, and, and Amy and I went to our butcher, who's in North Carolina. Um, we saw a field of, of sage that was being harvested for perfume. And again, that's the type of thing that has to, has to happen. Your state or someone has to come in to help set up these little pockets of specialty crops. You understand me? A place to sell them. Yes. It's um, at an economic pricing. And, and so right now, we farmers are trying to do all that ourselves. We're trying to identify the market, grow the product, <laughs> market it. Um, um, how can I say it? Further process it, and it's very, very hard to do those multiple tasks. So, and and I don't, I haven't figured out the answer yet. Um, when you say what is the answer, I'm still struggling um, to try to figure out the answer. But I do know that that um, government has got to step in and help. You understand me? Uh-huh. Uh, assist in setting up these small processes to assess with these niche products. Um, can be done something as simple as origin labeling. Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of you, and you can tell me, I'm going to ask you a question. When you go to your store and buy a package of organic whatever, do you know where it's coming from? I I usually check the label, but it, but that doesn't necessarily have a, it doesn't necessarily have a meaning. Actually, no, I do not. I do not. If it's like a, I, most of the time I don't, but I do try to be intentional, but I don't know. <laughs> no, and, and I'm not and, and I'm not attacking you, but what I'm getting at is that it is a marketing thing from organic side, but it is yeah. not a requirement that you gotta have origin labeling on food. And Just, I think it ought to have country and I'd really like to have state mm. on it and everything. Because you can you can the other evening, Amy and I were watching a program, and I forget what it was, but it was about beef farming down in the Amazon and the indigenous people, and and it followed it all through that I believe it was in, uh, Amy, was it in Argentina? I believe. But Argentina, Venezuela, one, I'm forgetting. But, but basically, that food was coming into the U.S. The whole caucus was coming to the U.S. They were butchering it and processing it here in the U.S., labeling it as a u.s product because they further process it here but when the reality of it is is when you buy that beef you are displacing indigenous people and where they were getting murdered and their villages were getting <laughs> going up in flames mm-hmm. um it was illegal it was it, it was produced illegally we don't have a way of knowing that in the u.s so origin labeling and again federal and state programs to assist local food producers um and even consumers in education, and I say education, further processing. Um, and I say further processing, setting up, set up some place that people could buy. Let, let me back up. A pet peeve of Amy's and I is that when we go to a farmer's market, we don't need a consumer to come up and buy one tomato. We need you to buy a bushel. Mm. And what is most people going to do with a bushel of tomatoes? They don't have any, they're not experiencing canning. So set up a place that consumers can take the stuff and get it canned. But anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. It's still, all of us are struggling. So, Amy, fill in for my grant and sermon. I just want to say a couple things and then then, then I'll toss it back to you, Fabrice. Uh, Mm. You were asking what 
what could be done to attract more people to agriculture and to stem the flow of rural decline and uh, flight from the farms? Just several things. We are not attracting enough young farmers. We're, we're hemorrhaging older farmers, older farmers are dying and they're not, they don't have anybody to, um, you know, follow in their footsteps. We need to be able to pay laborers more. We can't get any labor because as Michael pointed out, at the price point for us to be able to afford to pay laborers for four to five dollars an hour. Mm -hmm. So I have this, this fantasy that if we could pay laborers $30 an hour and provide them health care, then you could attract people that like to work outside and like to work with their hands and like to grow food. But with the way the economics are in small agriculture right now, there's no way you can afford to pay anybody $30 an hour and provide them health insurance. But I don't know how else we're gonna attract young farmers and young farmers can't afford to buy the equipment and the land and the startup costs and to spend two or three years at a loss. And then the other challenge we have of course is climate change. Mm. And then one of Michael's pet peeves are pandemics. We, we, we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic, but the agricultural community has been hit with pest pandemics for years wow. or a century or two. So we're, the challenges we have are economics, their weather, uh, changing unpredictable weather. And um, anyway, it's just, it's just very difficult. Wow, that is that is very startling. I and I I I appreciate the context that you've given. Why you've painted you both have painted <laughs> such a historical, but also a present, and also in the contextualizing within a an increasingly globalized world. I would love to. I I do want to talk about the future and where we're headed and how all these intersecting things are happening because it, it's it's because I feel like when you look at the history of like the planet or the history of modern countries, there are industries that rise and industries that vanishes. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the trajectory of ag agriculture, I don't wanna say that, but it seemed like it's becoming less and less and less. So I, I would love to shift a little bit before we go and talk on that specifically to Amy, like your, like your passion for documentary filmmaking. I got to, to check out the, the documentary on the peanuts in Virginia. Like I would love to, to hear sort of your process. How was that for you sort of going in and telling the story of the industry and seeing all the shifts from, from slavery, from the civil war, from everything that's sort of happening and how it's sort of changed and wh where we're going now. I'd love to sort of hear your, and in any new projects that you're working on. And I think that will tie in very really well into where do we go from here? Because I do feel storytelling is is sort of part of the solution too. Is how do we tell a better story of agriculture and and that there are real people that are living in 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 this lived experience. Um, yes, and absolutely, and and ultimately, I am hopeful. And and my hope comes from you know how can I contribute? How can I be helpful to to try to turn this titanic, titanic um, 
ship of agriculture that's headed for the iceberg, how can we turn that around? And the only thing I can do is to advocate. And so by producing, when I produced the Virginia peanut story, thank goodness got to interview several elderly farmers before they, they died. And, and yes, we've lost three farmers since I produced that film. Wow. So what they really shared with me was their, their love of agriculture and their love of the land and their great, great desire to pass it along to future generations and their concern that that might not happen. So my contribution is to, uh, through storytelling, through my filmmaking, to make people aware and to educate people and to, to hopefully try to save and capture the agriculture experience and the history and uh, the challenges that we face now before we go too far down the line in the future and aren't able to, to save some of these small farms. With losing 100,000 small farms a year, I feel like we're in a race wow. and it's a battle. So the after I did the Virginia Peanut story, which of course gave me a, a tremendous insight into agriculture that I did not have before, I'm now working on a podcast called Rule Matters. Mm. Rule, that's R-U-R-A-L, Matters. And my goal in that is to highlight uh, the decline in rural communities and to open up conversations around what we can do to make rural communities more attractive and to attract more people to these rural communities and to agriculture. And also to uh, gain a greater appreciation of agriculture. So uh, I'm doing this, I did the Virginia Peanut Story. I'm working on rural matters right now. I've just finished today uh, turning in a grant to uh, Virginia Humanities to fund the first two podcasts. And then I'm working on a treatment and storyline for a much larger documentary, maybe a six hour series on the economics of agriculture. Wow. I, I would love to, that, that's really amazing. Um, I'm a big advocate for storytelling. And I think that's sort of the final frontier, the hearts and minds of people. I would love to hear um, even from Michael and also Amy from your experiences, like as technologies have been introduced in the farming process, do you feel like that's been has this sort of accelerated the level of productivity that you've been able to have? Or do you feel like local farmers are resistant to new technologies as it is, like you said, Amy, it's sort of a, a, a creative process where you're working with the land with your hands. So what is that tension between like at what, what on the local level in like your neighborhood and your communities, like what are the variation in terms of adoption of new technologies to accelerate the process? Is this something that has been welcome in your community? And also, how does that intersect with the local government? Because I know you've talked a lot about federal government. How are local commissioners or local mayors, like how are they reacting to this shift when farming communities are represented locally? Like how are they able to advocate? And what are some of the things that have been sort of Play put in place to address this this hemorrhaging as you described it. Amy, I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. jump in on this one. Yes, yes, please do. And 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 
I, I'm one of these unfortunate, I call it fools, that is uh, that ran for a public office and got elected to represent my district here on the local level. So I'm on the board of supervisors in the county. And so I think I can speak to this. I'm going to say that, and I think your question is, how is technology transforming rural America? Mm-hmm. And overall? Yes. And, and are people it, resistant to it? Or is it something that's helpful? Oh, it's very, very helpful. Not not resistant to it. Um, they might be resistant to social change, but they're not resistant to technological change. Um, bringing, it's, in the U.S., I'll have to say, and this is unfortunate, the farm I'm sitting on here now got electricity in the 1940s, and it would not have gotten electricity if it hadn't been a federal program to subsidize it to bring it to a rural America. I don't know why um, we don't treat broadband and fiber as a utility, because it's what it is, and it has been fragmented. Um, and it has been very challenging to bring broadband to rural America, and it's needed. Um, and and in the county that I, we sit in, we are fortunate to have an electric. It's called rural electrification. It was from the old days of federal subsidies. Uh, it's called Prince George Electric Cooperative. It's a cooperative owned by the people, the customers, and the farmers. And we were able to convince them, or they convinced us. It was a joint effort between the local government, um, the state, and the electric cooperative to just very simply string fiber on their already existing electric poles. I'm sitting in an office now in this rural sector with broadband. Mm. It's very, very important. And and let me just, I'm going to back up just a second and say large farms. The reason that we have just a handful of farmers is that they have adopted technology. They need broadband to market their crops. But most importantly, GPS is a big, big deal now on these farms. Uh, won't get into all the detail, but most of these tractors around here now are GPS guided and sprayers and all this kind of stuff. So you basically can sit up in your tractor now, put it on GPS, and you're just there monitoring stuff as you go planting. It adjusts fertilization rates according to soil. It it adjusts plant populations and spacings according to soil. Uh, so big, big deal for these farmers around here. Um, it, it, so, so they've adopted that greatly, but that's more of GPS and, and this type of thing. Where broadband is coming in is that nobody wants to move. It's like a, it's like a utility. Um, um, <laughs> it, People want broadband. In fact, our inn that I think you actually stayed in, our reservations, Amy, back me up on it, have increased dramatically since we put in broadband there. Interesting. Um, people didn't want to come to a place that didn't have broadband, and people don't want to live in an area that they that doesn't have broadband. So people are moving out to get that amenity. I think they'll be coming back um, because it's with a small farm. How are we using it? Um, it's unbelievable to me that Amy can post what we have online on Facebook at one evening, and the next morning we have consumers on a farm. With that, it would be difficult for us to be small farmers. So people are embracing it. The small farmers from uh, getting the word out of what they've got. Uh, without Facebook, and Amy's the one that does it, uh, we would have a difficulty um, marketing and letting people know uh, when to come and pick up products that are 
at a farm. So it's not a resistance at all at the end of rural America. It will greatly enhance rural America. Uh, unfortunately, without a lot of help sometimes from from governmental entities. But uh, no, no, rural America's ready for it and embracing it. Um, it's just not coming fast enough. So, and and Amy, you got anything else to add to that? Well, you know, one of the things that, that uh, I am trying to encourage people to do through my film work and serving on panels and workshops is to uh, educate the consumers enough that they advocate for small farms, for better food systems, for better supply systems, um, and to, to help these small agricultural communities. Because the, one of the first documentaries I ever did was on childhood obesity. And when I did that, I of course, I learned so much about just really the awful food that we eat, the, the mass-produced food with all the preservatives. Mm. And uh, so, so we really need to move towards healthier eating. But healthier eating, unless we're getting it from, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables from third world countries that potentially have been sprayed with, you know, DDT and other things, it's too expensive to produce here in the U.S. So anyway, I'm, no, I'm I, sorry. I, I kind I, of forgot where I was going with that. No, no, I think you bring up an interesting point because it's like I'm originally from Haiti and a lot and I've spoken to, to this a little bit in other podcasts. It's like there, there is this idea of of cheap labor and la lax labor laws, where that's sort of the that's the culture of companies going out and looking out for the best, like the bottom line. And right. if you get those workers in other countries, they they make the case that this is good because it's better than nothing, and that that's essentially helping. Let's say, a, let's say a corporation that's American that's going out abroad to do these things. I, I feel like, like I guess my my because I, I'm definitely I definitely have tensions against that because I feel a lot the people underground that are working in these these uh, factories or these uh, farming fields in Haiti or other or elsewhere in developing countries should have a higher pay and should have a better living conditions. And but I almost feel like. This is a question I'm going to throw to both of you is like, do you feel that small agricultural farming in America in 20 years will no longer exist? Is that, is that a fear of you that you have? And, and what, what, like, what does that bring up for you inside of you and your gut and your intuition, um, that statement? Hi. Uh, go ahead, Mike. I'm gonna jump in. No, no, I don't think it's going away. I don't know what it's gonna look like, and I don't know how the economy, economics, gonna play out. But I don't think it's going away because um, I think more people are starting to understand and doing just like you're doing, trying to educate people on this. It's more to it than just living on a farm, and it's it's a social, it's a way of life, and I think it's very attractive to people. They just don't want to be treated like like what you're talking about in other countries. And I think there'll be a pushback against it. And I think we will solve it. I'm very optimistic about it. I just don't know the answers yet, but I don't think it's going away. I think people will become more in tune that the food that we eat and what we're putting into our bodies is what we are. And I, I once 
um, talked to a producer over in Europe that told me um, Europe is a heavy subsidizer of their of their farmers and in small farmers. And I think I'm correct on this. At one time, I saw with the EU, the European Union, and I think I'm right on this. I'd heard it. I didn't verify it. That 30 to 40 percent of the EU budget is supporting their farmers. Wow. And the U.S. doesn't do that. And this this person in Europe told me, "Hey, Mike, <laughs> y'all don't have any food traditions over there. Y'all y'all eat food like you're going to a gas station." <laughs> Where is it cheapest? You look at price points, you go in there, you fill your belly up, and you keep on going. Mm-hmm. I think we're moving away from that. Uh, and and that's – I think people are starting to look and value food traditions. Again, I think all of this will push us towards that small ag will have a, have a, uh, a seat at the table, so to speak, in the future. I'm just not sure – how to get them, but I am very, very confident, just like you asking us to talk about it. Um, I, I, I think it's gonna, gonna, gonna be there and, um, and, and the younger generations will figure it out. And I hope that Amy through her documentaries, what you're doing, will figure it out. Um, I want to write a book on the economics of it and how do you succeed in it? Cause I think the answer is there. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'm very optimistic that it's going to survive and we've just got to educate people and Amy and I both see people coming out here to the farm. They want to know. Sometimes consumers don't like to hear about what you just uh, uh, have, have talked about because I, too, were in the fields in Mexico where they were picking raspberries one time in southern Mexico. And, and the laborers out there were getting paid very little. And these raspberries were being put on a truck and driven all the right way to a distribution point in around Washington, D.C. and I, in, in December. And so you could sit here in the U.S. and have raspberries at your Christmas table. And I had mixed emotions about it. I go, wow, that's not right. And they're not paying these people enough. But yet, if they didn't do it, you understand me, what would these people do? Mm-hmm. My solution for it is we need to pay people a fair wage where they're not in poverty when they do this. And I'm talking worldwide. And U.S. consumers need to be educated. So I think education, just like you're doing, is, is what will keep it alive. And, and thank you so much for doing that. And, and Amy, now I'll my soapbox again. <laughs> well, thank you. No, no, no. I, I absolutely agree that, uh, you know, we need to, consumers, Americans need to change the way they think about food. And so instead of having raspberries in December, you know, sacrifice a little bit. Try to eat a little more seasonally. Try to eat a little more locally. Support that local farmer, not just by going to the farmer's market, buying one tomato and two cucumbers, you know, educate yourself, learn a little bit about canning, go to that farmer's market and say, I want a bushel of green beans and I'm going to can them and I'm going to eat those canned green beans all winter long. Uh, We just really need a paradigm shift in America in the way we think about food, the way we think about farming and agriculture and what we put into our bodies and what we put into the environment. How, how does that happen? I know I'm pushing a little bit, but it's just, I feel like I, I totally agree. I feel our con, the, cons, the awareness of the consumer as we walk into the store and how we understand the, the supply chain from where the food, like I know for me, like one way that I started to sort of 
understand the kind of the broader systems was like in 2012 where I, I sort of I had a spiritual awakening and then that's where I become vegetarian and I was like researching and I saw like how food systems were so connected to like the entire planet and and injustices but also climate change and and really the idea of mindfulness eating like you're eating let's say lettuce like how are you grateful for the the person that planted the lettuce, that harvested it and that grew it and then the, the car that drove it to the store and then this and that. I feel like there's such a shroud. There's such a shroud and in, in especially in agriculture where the food comes from, how it's grown and what process. We sort of like, we're so used to just the comfort of just going to the store, getting our food and going back. This idea of quick, this idea of fast, this idea of, of this rapid process. Like, I, I wonder, like, because I, I could, I don't know, like, how, how do we even have this paradigm shift? I know that's, that this might even be one of the final questions is like, how do we, like, how do we start to pay attention to these finer details? Because when things are becoming increasingly fast, we do have social media that does have an internet consequences before sort of sucked into this sort of, because the urban life is like you, this, the way it, it goes and it flows, it's like speed. It you're literally, you're just thrusted into a mechanical system and you have to work and you have to do this. Like, I remember when I stayed at your farm, like Amy, and it, it was, it was, it was almost magical because it's, it's like, I saw frogs, I saw praying mantises, I saw cardinals, I saw like, I saw ants, I saw spiders, I saw all sorts of rabbits. I feel like my life sort of slowed down and there was sort of this this connectedness that I had sort of missed. And I felt connected very much when I lived in Haiti too. But, and I almost feel like with this time of COVID, more and more people, I'm hearing more and more friends are going hiking or going uh, to out in, in nature. I don't know, I, I would be, I would love to hear like, what is that process for that paradigm shift? Like, how have you seen it in your communities or maybe other people that you've talked about or you talked with? Because I feel that paradigm shift is the hardest thing to go about to do, which is so important. Well, I, I, Michael, I'm just going to say one thing, and then then I'm going to let you you take it on. I think that the way we uh, make the paradigm shift, and and there are many other uh, things we need to do as well. But one thing that could happen is that consumers need to. Uh, lobby for greater legislative support and policies mm. to support these small local farms that are actually producing the food that we eat. So that needs to happen. I think, and then, then if we did that, if, if farmers were paid uh, a living wage for the lettuces and tomatoes and, and the food they're actually producing, then that would also help attract more young people to farming. And if we continue that educational piece, then, you know, I'm hoping to grow a new crop of, of young farmers. Hmm. But I think it's gotta, there's gotta be a legislative solution component as well as an educational component. So legislative with the government, educational with the consumers are the two ways that I see to get to where we want to go. I love it. Michael, I, I, I thought about all these things, and 
climate. And Amy and I have lots of talks about this. And uh, it's one of the joys of living in the country. It's, it's silent and and we've been socially distancing out here for years. And, and it gives you time to think. And Amy and I talk about this. And I always come down to the point that people can think about this stuff, but they really don't shift unless something forces them to shift. And and I'm going to just say we might be forced to shift. And COVID is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, we have seen an increased interest in people wanting to come to the farm during COVID times. Um, and I think we... I, Reese, I don't know whether you are in tune with this, what I'm next going to say or not, but I certainly was. Um, during this year, um, you couldn't hardly find garden seed because there was such a demand for it. Um, you could hardly find uh, good organic flour because people were baking more at home. Mm. Um, and I could go on and on, and and people were starting to think about their health. And even our sales at the farm, I, I hate to say this, but this is going to be one of our, our better years here on the farm because people are saying, hey, we, we really should think about what we eat. Mm. And so that wasn't something that we saw. Jen, I don't like being in this COVID and everything, and I'll be glad when we can find a, uh, have a vaccine or something to help cure it. But but I couldn't predict that come in January of 2020, but um, it was forced upon us. And so I think the paradigm shift with climate change and more food insecurities, I think people start thinking about it. And I, we've seen a serious shift in people um, coming here and what they're wanting and demand for food and wanting to know where the food is coming from because of COVID and even people planting gardens. Now, when it gets back to what I call more normal times, I don't know how much of that will stick, but it will stick some. And so I think what you're doing, um, I think some of it will be forced upon us, especially with climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and who knows how often these pandemics, as Amy mentioned earlier, with with travel so easy between countries and everything, farmers have been dealing with natural pandemics for a long, long time. And, and it's something that kind of has intrigued me is that you know, this is a human virus pandemic, but Mother Nature and the plants around here, almost every year on the farm, there's an introduction of a new pest or a new disease um, that attacks our uh, fruits and vegetables that we try to grow. It's very, very, gardening is dramatically different from when I was a teenager in the last 40 years. It's just dramatically changed as the number of diseases and stuff has hit. But my point of it is, it's become more and more difficult. So I, whether we want it or not, I think this will be a third shift, even if it's us trying to survive. So, um, but it goes back to education and, and people and, and, and just health. So uh, making people aware, again, which I applaud what you're doing. Thank you. I think that's amazing. I, I really like what you said this that it is like this black swan event that is COVID is sort of is putting a pause on the entire system, the entire planet. And it's making people reflect about their lives and how they live their, it's sort of slowed down people and the people are taking a step back and are reflecting. And I, and I do believe, I do believe that I, I, in my gut, I do believe that there is going to be 
a greater need to reconnect with the planet, reconnect with nature, reconnect to more organic foods. I think that's that's pivotal. I think that's part of the future. Um, and I and I, I really appreciate both of you coming on the show and telling your stories and giving us such an in-depth historical, also societal economics behind the farming and the changes. And I really like what you said that you believe that the jobs are not gonna go away. I think that the changes are gonna be transformative and, and they will adapt. And I like the solutions that you've given as well, Amy, in terms of legislation. I agree, I think more people need to advocate for these things and and I think it's going to happen and I people like yourselves are working every day on those measures um I again I appreciate you both coming on the show I, I wanted to give space I always ask this question to all the guests and you kind of went through it a little bit but it's like what is one idea um that you feel like the listeners should be paying attention to for the next 20, 30 years. That's gonna shape the next 20 years. It could be something that we talked about on the show or something that's connected to farming or in your own life. Like what is that one idea that you think is gonna be important that people need to pay, pay attention in terms of the next 20, 30 years of our planet or our country? Hmm. Amy? Well, uh, I don't know if this is actually an answer to that question, but one of the things that I like to end on is um, one of my favorite quotes by Thomas Jefferson. One of the issues that we run into out here that is also a challenge is the old green acre stereotype. Now you grew up in Haiti, so I'm not sure if you were familiar with the television show Green Acres from the 60s and 70s, but it was a, a big caricature stereotype of farmers and rural communities. And they were predict they were depicted as, you know, dumb and uh, out of touch and all, all in the name of comedy. However, that stereotype has prevailed, and Michael was kind of kind of referred to it earlier. That a lot of times people will come out here, and there is is a there's an arrogance, and and they think we're you know not very smart. Maybe we're not because we're out here losing money on the farm. So they could be correct in that. But uh, I'm hoping in the future for a little more humility and respect from everyone. If, 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 our, if the population could learn to be respectful and listen a little more, not just to the farmers and farming, but in all sectors of our lives, society and culture, I think that would be a great improvement. And then we could move forward with, with uh, positive solutions. But getting back to my Thomas Jefferson quote, Thomas Jefferson told us one time that the word humble is a derivative from the Greek word humus. And of course, humus means soil. And basically what he said is that the closer you are to the soil, to the humus, the more humble you are, the more grounded. And the further away you get from the ground, from the humus, from the soil, the less connected, the less grounded you are. And so by putting your hands in dirt occasionally, even if it's just a pot of herbs or container tomatoes, it will make you feel better. It will make you more humble. It will slow you down. 
and you'll be providing a little bit of your own food. Mm. I love that. <laughs> That's nice for me. Michael, what do you have in mind for your the one idea? I'm, I'm going to, I'm just, and you brought the term up earlier, just being mindful and and always think about it. And I'm going to use the term, as I think you may have said, it's mindful eating. Just think about the food you eat, how it connects to the environment um, and its impact, how it connects to the society and your community, um, how it connects to your health. You are what you eat. And uh, just just think about it. And and then also, I had I had the connection to actually experience it from early in life. And I often think about this, if I didn't have that experience, would I be this much in tuned with it? Um, but just experience it, seek out, seek out a farmer, a person who produces that food and spend some time with them, even if it in the just of the day and experience what they go through. Cause I can tell you it's nothing more humbling than farming. I feel like I know less now uh, at the age of early 60s than I did 20 years ago. It just, it, it's very, very humbling. It's hard to have an ego while you try to produce food. So, so mindful, mindfulness, and, and especially when it comes to your food and, 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 and experience it so you'll understand. Um, cause that's a reference here and, um, a food or whether it's plants, um, they're all living things. And, uh, I will go back to, they used to be, this sounds pretty gruesome, but uh, every winter there would be a winter hog killing and butchering that everybody, the farmers, would come together. And it is gruesome, and it is not anything fun about uh, uh, killing an animal and butchering it. But I'm going to tell you that it was very, very reverent. Uh, if there was any foolishness going on, the elders would tell you to stop it. And this is not a time that you should you understand me, be very reverent for what these animals are doing for you. And, but just connect with that food. So mindful to eating and, and go out and experience it um, and see, because you'll, you'll be humbled. People will be humbled. And Farise, thank you so much for this. And I want to say this one thing that impressed me that, that some people don't have say when they come to this farm. I'm so glad that you noticed the bugs <laughs> and the animals when you're at the farm. Because we have many, many, many complaints that people will call us and say, hey, there's a bug in the house. Um, hey, <laughs> a mouse just ran through the house. And when I'm thinking, man, that's a healthy environment. You know, we need more bugs. <laughs> it's a sign of a healthy environment to me. And so thank you so much for noticing those small things when you were here. It's what brings Amy and I joy when we're here. It's, it's a healthy environment. It's not just us. It's all the animals and bugs and everything that live here as well. And so thank you so much. Absolutely. I, I appreciate your words of wisdom, both of you, about connecting to the earth and the dirt and the planet as a way to sort of unpeel the layers of the ego. And, and, and that also ties to the mindfulness as well. And absolutely, I think like I, I feel I haven't seen the, there's a unique aesthetic when you see these these critters and these little bugs, I feel like my first job I, I wanted to do when I was a kid was a zoologist. And then I slowly grew older and I realized that the planet was like burning down with climate change. So I needed to think bigger. Um, but 
seriously, I appreciate you both being on the show. And this has been such a treat to hear such unique perspective of what's happening at the cornerstone of, of this country and this massive changes uh, and to give us insight into your lives and, and what we can do about it. Again, thank you, Michael and Amy. And this has been fantastic. And thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure and honor to be on your show. Absolutely. And, and, and thank you. Thank you for what you're doing too. And we're all in this together and, um, and I'm optimistic. So, uh, and everybody else should be too. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Fabrice Garrier Show. If you really like what you heard, please share it with friends, colleagues, and family. And also don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and support me on Patreon. Again, we have really unique guests and for upcoming episodes. So stay tuned and thank you.